Well, good morning. Uh, you can do a little better than that, man. It's, good morning. All right. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Now, before we dive into the message this morning, I am excited to announce to you that we will be having, for the very first time, our very first Weekender. You're like, I don't know what that is. Say Weekender. All right, so on Friday evening, October 14th, and Saturday morning, October 15th, um, we're going to be having The Weekender. Now, The Weekender is designed for anyone who's interested in taking their next step in connecting with Risen Church as a local church. And so we'll meet on Friday, and we'll have a meal together, and we'll talk about who our church is, why we exist, some of the history and the vision for the future, and our values. And, but most importantly, what we're going to do is we're, it'll be a great time to connect, and we're going to get to know each other. It's going to be a great time. Again, it'll be Saturday uh, morning. It'll be Friday evening, and then again, Saturday morning, which is why we're calling it the weekender, right? So, um, and then again, you could come on Sunday morning to church. It's like a whole weekend. It'd be great. So, um, Saturday morning, we're going to have breakfast together, and we're going to continue talking about what it looks like to partner together as a local church. And we'll talk about community groups, and we'll talk about ministry teams. We'll talk about all the different ways that we love on Jesus together by partnering together in the gospel, and what that means and what that looks like. And so, if you consider in your home church, or, or, but you're, just, you're not yet a partner, or you're not even sure what it means to be a partner, or what partner means. So partner is our word for member. And so if you're interested in learning more about this, then I want to invite you to join us on Friday and Saturday, October 14th and 15th, for our very first Weekender. So uh, you can sign up by using the QR code that should be on your seats, uh, or simply by going to risenchurchvb.com, which is our website, and you can get more information about that there. So... Let's dive in here. So throughout the summer, uh, we've been walking through the book of Colossians. And so we're rounding the corner both on the, uh, the summer, we're in the, the home stretch at the end of the summer and in this series. And so the book of Colossians, uh, we're going to dive in here. The book of Colossians is actually an ancient letter uh, that was written by the Apostle Paul to the ancient church in Colossae. And so as we've walked through this letter, we've keyed in on our anchor verse uh, which comes from Colossians 2, verse 6 through 7. And Pastor Dave uh, mentioned this and read through it right before we sang Firm Foundation. So we just sang about it, and we just heard about it. But I want to read this verse again, because it's kind of the, the uh, not kind of, it is the anchor verse for our entire series. So Colossians 2, verse 6 through 7, says this, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So the name of the series, again, is Firmly Established. And last week we began in section, uh, or we began a new section in chapter 3 of this letter, which specifically addresses a new kind of community and a new way of interacting with one another as God's chosen holy and beloved people. So we're a people who are firmly established in Christ and abounding then in thanksgiving. And this is the gospel that sets us apart from everything else. The thing that makes a Christian a Christian is they've received this good news that God became a man and he lived the life we couldn't live and he died the death that we deserve to die. And he conquered death in the grave 
through the resurrection, by paving the way to eternal life with God Almighty, God the Father. And it's an eternal life that starts now, not just one day when we die, but the moment we place our faith and our hope in what Christ did through the cross and resurrection, by placing our faith and, uh, and hope in Christ, God the Son, we're grafted into this relationship with God as our Father. And He fills us with His Spirit. And He forgives us of our sin. And He changes us from the inside out. He gives us new hearts a regenerate heart, and it changes our desires. It changes our affections. It changes the way we see the world. It doesn't necessarily, the, the, you don't suddenly become a perfect person by any stretch of the imagination, but you do suddenly become perfectly loved in Christ. That changes everything. And so this is what our firm foundation is. It's in Christ alone, our cornerstone and so as the Spirit transforms us from the inside out, we begin to live a new kind of life as a new kind of people, a new kind of community. And we're given these new affections, these new desires, and a completely new way of life because now our vertical relationship has been redeemed and reconciled and restored, and so it changes the way that we interact horizontally with each other. Our vertical relationship overflows into our horizontal relationships. That's what's different about a Christian, a real Christian. That doesn't mean these are perfect, right? But it does mean that this is the overflow of this. And that we can go here, and that redeems and changes all of this, okay? And so, we're, again, this is all, it changes the way we interact horizontally with one another. And that, in fact, that, that phrase, one another should sound familiar to you if you're familiar with your Bibles. In, in the Greek, it's actually one word. That phrase, one another, is one word in the Greek, alelon. And that word appears a lot in the New Testament. Think about it. John 13, 34. Love one another. That's what Jesus commands us to do. Ephesians 4, 2. Bear with one another in love, humility, gentleness, and patience, eager for unity. Colossians 3, 13, forgive one another, alone, as God has forgiven you. Galatians 5, 26, don't be conceited and provoke one another. Mark 9, 50, be at peace with one another. John 6, 43, don't grumble among one another. Ephesians 4:32 Be kind and tender-hearted toward one another as you forgive one another. Alelon, alelon. 1 Thessalonians 5:15 Don't repay evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another. James 4:11 Don't speak evil of one another. James 5:9 Don't grumble against one another. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. Galatians 5.13, serve one another. 1 Peter 5.5, 5, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage and build up one another. James 5.16, pray for one another. 
I could go on and on, but if I did, we'd be here for a long time. Because while that phrase is used um, a lot here, right, it's actually used, that Greek word, alelon, is used 100 times just in the New Testament. 100 times in 94 verses, which means in some verses, he uses it a lot. So Colossians 3.17 says this, And whatever you do, say whatever. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything. Say everything. In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then what follows in the next few verses are specific instructions on what it looks like to do life in word and deed in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so Paul lists a number of ordinary, everyday, horizontal relationships that the Colossians lived within in their daily lives. He talks about wives to husbands and husbands to wives, children to parents, parents to children, bondservants to masters, and masters to bondservants. And he shows us how Jesus turns these everyday, ordinary interactions into extraordinary opportunities for worship. And what we see here is that the way that the ordinary becomes extraordinary is by doing everything in the name of Jesus and giving thanks. And so he's saying, for the Christian, life isn't about your husband. Life isn't about your wife. Life isn't about your kids. Life isn't about your master or your boss. And life isn't about you or even what they think of you. Life's not even about, about what you think of yourself. It's about what God thinks of you. It's about what God says about you. Because it's all about Jesus. And it's all about what pleases him and brings him the most glory because he's the only one who's worthy of it. And the truth is, is that he's the only one who actually has your best interests in mind. And so to live in the world in, in, in word and in deed in the name of the Lord Jesus means that we're living our lives oriented primarily around Jesus for his glory. And so it means you've given up on just trying to figure out what you can get away with or just building your own kingdom for your own glory. And you've started asking then how you can steward and even leverage your time and your talent and your treasure and resources in a way that most glorifies God and expands his kingdom upon the earth. Because after all, your time, your talent, your treasure, all of these things are ultimately his. You've been given a stewardship over it. How then will you leverage and use it? Will it be for your own kingdom or will it be for his kingdom? This is the world we live in. So this is a life lived in Jesus' name and it's all done with a heart level of thanksgiving, not a begrudgingness, right? And so this morning, we're going to hone in on the last few verses of chapter 3 here in Colossians and then the first verse of chapter 4, which addresses the relationship between parents and children and masters and bondservants which is the ancient Greco-Roman concept also known as slavery. And there's a theme here in this passage that I don't want you to miss. Often people avoid this passage because it's historically been used to exploit and manipulate others to build their own personal kingdoms. I don't know if you've noticed that or not, or you knew that much about this passage here, but this passage, I want you to see, it does not condone slavery and oppression. That's not what this is about. In fact, it's the opposite. This passage is about operating in your, your true identity as a beloved child of God, no matter what kind of earthly circumstance or relationship you're operating within. That's what this is about. 
And so it's about seeing every person, no matter what their earthly position may be, through the lens of the cross and the resurrection. In other words, this passage is about the gospel. Shocker, right? So for the rest of our time, we're going to walk through Colossians 3, verse 20, through Colossians 4, verse 1. And in case you're wondering, um, no, we're not like screwing up God's inspired like sections. So one of the things that you, I, you need to know about the verses that are in the Bible is they were added much later. So the verses and chapter breaks are added much later. Uh, the saying goes that it was that the verses and chapters were added by a man who was riding a horse to Rome, and with every bump on the way, he was like, "And new verse, you know, new chapter." And so um, they don't necessarily make sense. And this is one of those times where I would say that the chapter break happens way too soon, because uh, chapter four, verse one, definitely belongs within this last section of chapter 3. So that's why we've sectioned this the way we have. And so we're going to specifically look here at what may be some of the most difficult relationship dynamics in history. And that's the relationship between parents and children and the relationship between masters and bondservants. So at first it may seem like these two dynamics couldn't be further apart, but as we're going to see this morning, the comparison here is intentional because for those who are in Christ, all are children of God, and he shows no partiality, and that changes everything. So here's what I want you to get. Every relationship is a stewardship from God and for God. To operate in the name of Jesus means that behind everyone we serve stands Jesus Christ. Every relationship is a stewardship from God and for God. So to operate in the name of Jesus means that behind everyone we serve stands Jesus Christ. It's ultimately all about him. right? He is the object of our service and the ultimate recipient of it. In the way that we work, in the way that we love, in the way that we interact with one another horizontally, it all flows upward vertically to Jesus as a sweet aroma of worship to him. So that's why people aren't just a means to an end, right? They are the mission. People aren't a means to an end. People are the mission. God isn't just concerned with what we accomplish in this life. He cares about how we treat others in the process. Amen? Amen? I know it's a little hot in here. That AC will kick in. It's all right. Stay with me. Stay with me. I'm the one working hard up here, right? So here, all right. Um, so this applies to everyone in every circumstance, whether you're leading, being led, or just friends sharing life in Christ together. Every relationship is a stewardship from God and for God. So we need a lot of grace in this, right? Thankfully, we have it. In Christ. So remember, this all of this is in the context of Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 through 15. I'm going to reread it for you, okay? This is the context that all of this is within. Colossians 3, verse 12 says this Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So that's your foundation. Your foundation's in Christ. Put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility meekness and patience. 
bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So turn with me to Colossians 3, verse 20. We're going to look at this relationship first between parents and children. All right, Colossians 3, 20. It says this. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So Paul specifically and directly addresses children here, which means these kids are old enough to get what he's saying, right? But they're also young enough to still be living at home under their parents' authority. So it's a simple, straightforward statement, and it echoes one of the Ten Commandments that were given back in Exodus 12. I'm sorry, Exodus 20, verse 12, which says this. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Now remember, the context of the Ten Commandments was that God has delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt and was taking them into a promised land. You guys remember that context? It's important. In order to understand what he's talking about here, you need to understand that. I'm going to show you why. He's teaching them what it means to be sons and daughters. He's teaching them what it means to be children of the Most High rather than slaves. God was teaching them what it means to trust him, that he has their best intentions in mind, that he has a promise and a plan for their good. But he had some strongholds to work out in the, in the process. Because they still were living with a slave mentality. So he needed to teach them, you're not just slaves, you only do enough to survive and get by. But your sons and your daughters, your stewards of the land, you have a good inheritance from the Father. When you steward the land as a son or a daughter, it means that that land isn't just his, and he's getting all the benefits, and you're just catching the leftovers just enough for you to survive. That's a slave mentality. When you steward the land as an heir, it means you're enjoying the fruit with the Father. It means you are an heir, this is your inheritance. You own it. You care about it. And you enjoy it as the Father enjoys it. It's a relational mission rather than begrudging slavery. It's a different mentality. This is what God is teaching his people in the Old Testament, when he released them from slavery and captivity, he's teaching them before they get to the promised land, he's teaching them how to be sons and daughters. You split the sea. We just sang about it. First song. You split the sea so I could walk right through it. That's the Red Sea. Remember that? You split the sea so I could walk right through it, out of my slavery, into my sonship. My fears are drowned in perfect love. Woo! I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. Now you don't work in order to earn your salvation. You don't work in order to earn your survival even, or even your approval. That's a slave mentality. 
The entire wilderness experience in Exodus was about God teaching his people to trust him from their hearts as children. As his children, not as slaves having to look out for themselves or for their own survival and only concerned with number one, got to look out for me. That's a slave mentality, guys. That's the way this world operates. But not you. You're his children. And you know what he's doing? He's preparing you for a promised land. He's preparing you for the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven. And you know where it's going to be? In a fluffy, ethereal land that you can't comprehend. No! Here, on earth as it is in heaven, terra firma. You're stewarding a land now even as sons and daughters, not slaves. So this commandment in Exodus 20 wasn't just for kids. Follow this. It was for the generations. It's God's reminder to remember who you are and whose you are. Not slaves, children. To remember and honor the things that your mother and father told you about. Remember the context, okay? Don't just apply this to how you think of it now. Think about this as an Israelite receiving these Ten Commandments from Moses when he walks off Mount Sinai. You just walked out of slavery in Egypt. Now you're hearing this. Listen, he says, remember and honor the things your mother and father told you about what God has done. Teach your kids this. Kids, remember what God has done for your parents. He's saying if you honor your father and your mother, your days will be long in that promised land. Because by honoring your father and mother, you're honoring God's faithfulness and covenant with you as his people. Remember the people who walked into the promised land were not the generation that walked through the Red Sea. It was the generation after that heard about that from their parents. What gave them the faith to trust him to stop the Jordan River was remembering what their parents told them about the Red Sea. That's important. They honored their father and their mother, and they were honoring God's faithfulness and covenant with their, him as their people. And now this verse is often taken. Remember, focus. This verse, a lot of people think it means that as long as you're honoring your parents, you won't die at a young age. Anybody ever heard that? That's how a lot of people present it. Now, maybe that's true. Maybe that's part of it. But when you really look at the context, there's a bigger point that's being made here, which is about God's faithfulness throughout the generations to his people. Remember who you are and whose you are. Remember what I've done for your ancestors. Honor them by honoring the Lord. That's what he's saying to the Israelites in Exodus 20. And if you know your Old Testament, it was when the Israelites did not honor their heritage in the Lord and they began rejecting the God of their fathers and running to other gods. And the Lord sent them out of the promised land and into exile and captivity in Babylon, in a land that is not their own. This is part of the Old Testament. It's kind of like God put them in like a generational timeout so they could remember who they are and whose they are. And it was an act of mercy upon his children whom he loved to remind them that they, in fact, aren't called to captivity and slavery, but he's called them sons and daughters. And when he sent them there, he said, I've got a promise that you will not stay here forever, that yours is a promised land, and you'll come back, and you'll have an inheritance. Okay? And so it was all an act of mercy upon his people to prepare them ultimately for the grace that he would offer them in Christ, which is where God would provide the ultimate deliverance from the ultimate captivity, which is our own sin. 
and he would provide it to the entire world. Now, you might be thinking, this doesn't apply to me because my parents and ancestors didn't know God, right? But you need to realize this isn't just about your earthly lineage. Hear this. This is why this isn't about your parents' faith and their grandparents' faith. And, I, you know, I grew up going to this church, and so therefore my parents did this, and therefore this is my identity. No, hear this. You need to realize that this isn't about your earthly lineage. That commandment in Exodus 20 now applies to every believer who has received the grace of God in Christ by faith. So the commandment to honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord has given you now applies to you risen church. It applied to the Colossians. It applied to the Ephesians. It applies to every believer that's been grafted into a new covenant family by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. That's the power of the gospel that, G, that, that, that Jesus won for us and Paul declared over the Colossians here and the Ephesians. He's saying, if you're in Christ, then your spiritual family is the cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11. Your father is Abraham, and your heritage is the heritage of faith. So honor it with your life by living a life of love. This is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said the entire Old Testament hangs upon that commandment. This is our heritage in Christ. And so here in Colossians 3.20, Paul is speaking to the first generation of Christian children. Think about that. In Colossians, they were the first Christian kids. Their parents were Greeks. In Colossae, this is the first generation of Christian children. These kids weren't Jews. Their heritage was rooted in stories about Hercules and Achilles. This wasn't a godly culture. Their world was filled with stories about making a name for themselves, like Odysseus or Jason, maybe the great Spartan Leonidas, right? But Paul is telling them that they have a new legacy. But it's not about making a name for themselves. It's about the name of Jesus. That's different. It's really different. He's saying, your parents have received him by faith and they've been grafted into a new family with a new name. And so he says, listen and obey your parents. Not the culture around you. Not society. Your parents. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. But wait a minute. What land? What land is he talking about? The nation state of modern Israel? What are you talking about? Is that the land that the Lord's given us? Is it the Gaza Strip? Break out your guns. We've got to fight for that one. In order to receive God's promise. What? Is that what he's talking about? Think bigger. Think revelation. Think the new creation. Where heaven comes down to earth, this is our inheritance. This is the land the Lord is giving you. The Old Testament promised land was just a shadow. Eternity with Christ the King upon the earth 
is the substance it points us to on earth as it is in heaven. This is our mission. This is what we steward. This is our heritage. And this is the legacy we leave to our children by faith in Christ alone. This is the heritage we have and the legacy we leave for those who are in Christ and for those who would receive it. So honor this heritage in the Lord. Be thankful for it. And for children, that begins now through obeying your parents in everything. You might say, in everything? In everything. Yes, in everything. You see, this may be shocking to our culture, but the implication here is that children should not decide for themselves about what's best for them. Andy Taylor put it pretty well in the old episode from the Andy Griffith Show. You guys remember that? Andy Griffith Show? Yes, I am going there. Um, in the episode, his son Opie meets this smooth-talking drifter who, who does what he wants, when he wants, and he doesn't care about how it affects anybody else, and he calls that freedom. Okay? And then Opie is like, man, this guy's cool. He's got it figured out, you know? He decides that this is the kind of life that he wants to have also. And so Andy, who's Opie's father, confronts the drifter, and the drifter tells Andy that he should let his son decide what kind of life he wants to have for himself. And here's Andy's response. And I'm going to do my best Carolina accent to do it justice. So bear with me. Here we go. Andy's response was this. You can't let a youngin decide for himself. He'll grab at the first flashy with shiny ribbons on it thing he sees. It's difficult for him to tell the difference between right and wrong. When he finds out there's a hook in it, it's too late. The wrong kinds of things come packaged in so much glitter, it's hard to convince him that the other thing might be better in the long run. All a parent can do is say, wait, trust me, and try to keep temptation away. Slightly applicable. Guys, this is more than just old-fashioned tradition. This is an ancient biblical truth from God that has stood the test of time. It's not about Mayberry, right? This is about what is true and steadfast and a firm foundation. Now, you'd think that these things are self-evident, but there's a growing sentiment in our society that encourages children to decide for themselves, even to the extent of gender identity and surgical mutilation without even consulting their parents. That is insane. Like, it's not only disobedience to parents, guys. It's the fundamental abolition of parental authority that's given from God altogether. It's another level. Romans 1 Verse 30 even places, quote, disobedience to parents in the list of pagan vices that were symptomatic of a debased mind. And it's right in between inventors of evil and foolish. 2 Timothy 3.2 says that, the increasing, that increasing disobedience to parents is one of the marks of godlessness in the last days. Which makes sense, especially since parents are a shadow to children of the ultimate substance that is God. So as a child, your relationship to your parents teaches you about the authority of God. That means as a child, when you disrespect, disobey, or lie to your parents, you disrespect, disobey, and lie to God. 
Now, remember, the commandment in Exodus is to everyone, not just to children, but adults also. But Exodus doesn't use the term obey. Notice, it uses the term honor. A big difference. So when your child, or when you are a child, obey. But as an adult, the dynamic between you and your parents shifts from total obedience to honor. It's not the same thing. Because the goal of all parenting, hear this, is to point our children to the Lord, not just ourselves. This is the goal of all discipleship. Otherwise, you just create toxic, codependent relationships that are more about you and your control than about Jesus and his glory. Again, your children are given to you as a stewardship from God and for God. Ultimately, they don't belong to you. They belong to him. Psalm 127, verse 3 through 4 says this, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward, like arrows in the hands of a warrior. That means that parenting children skillfully means preparing to let them go and let them fly, right? As arrows, which means weapons to advance the kingdom. Weapons against the enemy. That's our children. Hello. That's why our primary goal is to make disciples of Jesus Christ out of our children. Not just disciples of us, but to point them to Jesus. So even after we've released them into the world, it's important, though, to keep your aim directly on Jesus. Most people, when they miss in archery, if you've ever shot a bow and arrow, or if you've ever done any archery lessons or anything like that, one of the top reasons people miss is because they either hold on too long I can't let go. And when you hold on too long, things start to get shaky. And then that's one of the reasons they miss. Or after they do let go, they drop their aim. Does that make sense? So when you pull back, release on time and keep your aim on Jesus. Even when your kids are 40 years old, if you're looking to Christ, they will likely they, it, they will be pointed in the right direction. Does that make sense? This is important. So our children are a stewardship from God and for God, which leads me to Colossians 3.21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So the word provoke here can also be translated exasperate. So if you're overly severe, or overbearing, or even insensitive to your children and their needs, it can crush their spirit. Like we're called to love and guide our children like God does. That doesn't mean we don't discipline. In fact, it's the opposite. Again, that discipline, though, must be tempered by love and a pure heart. So it's easy to discipline our kids by just dropping like indifferent truth bombs on them all the time, right? Like maybe you're tired of the way they're acting, so you give them a piece of your mind. But to speak the truth in love, as we're called to do, it's not just about dropping in different truth bombs, because love means you care about the outcome in them, not just that you've said what you needed to say and you've washed your hands of them. That's not love, right? Love cares about the outcome. And so we pay attention to our children's spirit 
as we discipline. Remember, this isn't just like a one-size-fits-all equation. It requires wisdom and sensitivity to the Holy Spirit's leading as we steward each individual soul that God entrusts to us. I know my children are very different, and so my approach to one is may crush their spirit while it didn't even phase the other one and it like needs to be a little more firm right like this is kind of thinking through how we approach right and so it requires again it's not just an equation that we can operate under it requires wisdom and sensitivity to the holy spirit and again hear this kids kids listen to me (laughs) don't go home and try to manipulate your parents with this verse don't do it Verse 20 is yours. Verse 20 says, obey your parents. That's your verse, right? Don't go home and be like, you're provoking me, right? (laughs) Don't do that. Verse 20 is yours. Obey your parents. Verse 21 doesn't apply until you're an adult. (laughs) But it's important for us to, as parents, be aware of the posture of our own hearts before the Lord as we parent. So God will use your kids to reveal things in your relationship with him. You'd be surprised how often that happens. See, when we lash out at our kids with an unexpected harshness, it probably has more to do with the stresses of your own life than their behavior, right? If you've parented for any amount of time, you know that. And that kind of emotional inconsistency can create a lot of distance and confusion in a child's heart, and it can lead to frustration and discouragement and even anger. And so and the, 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 the biggest consequence is that it paints a very inaccurate picture of who God is and how God is with his children. And again, listen, I don't claim to have arrived on this one. I appreciate your prayers. As a father, um, God knows, my wife knows, and my kids know that there are times when the posture of my own heart isn't on par with God's call on me as a father. But they also know that I'll never excuse that behavior, and I always apologize and make it clear that God's love for them calls me to be a better daddy. And as I do that, I'm displaying the goodness of God and the grace of God and actually preaching the gospel to them through my weakness. Because the only God is the perfect father and he disciplines us and loves us perfectly. So we point our children and all around us to the substance, not the shadow. Ephesians 6.4 is a parallel passage where Paul writes to the Ephesians and he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So the discipline and instruction of the Lord isn't provoking. It's not angering, and it's not discouraging. God doesn't provoke us by setting standards that are impossible for us to meet and then belittle us when we inevitably fall. A lot of people think that is how God is, and that's a lot of how people approach Christianity, right? Just like a bunch of rules that I can't ever meet. Why? It's not fair. This is the power of the gospel and the cross and the resurrection. A lot of that comes from overbearing fathers, right? And so the reason that we look to the cross and the resurrection, it proves that he is willing to meet us where we are and help guide us through the challenges of this life, even in his presence because of his grace. And so we're called to do the same with our kids. Amen? So God doesn't provoke us by failing to come through on our promises, right, or on his promises. His promises never fail, so we then are called to do the same with our kids. 
God doesn't provoke us by, by failing to affirm us when we do well or, or let us know how pleased he is with us. When that time comes to celebrate, he celebrates over us. He rejoices over us. Nothing could be more discouraging than to hit that home run or ace that test or win that race only to be met with silence from your parents. That's provoking, right? But if you're in Christ, that's not true of your heavenly Father. He celebrates with you. He delights in you. He sings over you. He sees you. He's involved. He's a pleased Papa, not an absent Father. And because we have Him, you can release and let go of your earthly shadows where they have fallen short. You can let the grace of God cover that and let go of any kind of bitterness there. Amen? Your achievements aren't just for him. They're with him. Our sonship is a call to stewardship and relationship with him and with one another, and he delights in us and the fruit all along the way. Just like a father delights in his sons, again, as they cultivate and steward the land and inheritance together, the more we do these things with our own children, the more readily they will receive these qualities from their heavenly father. But if you didn't receive these things in your earthly parents, I, I want you to re remember and see and realize that you have all these things in the love of God through Jesus Christ. Again, even if you're the best parents in the world and you do everything right, you need to remember that you're not ultimately responsible for your children's decisions in life or even as salvation uh, or, or in salvation as adults. If you think that you are, then you'll take the credit that's due only to God for their godliness and you'll wallow in shame for their wickedness. Your role, our role, is to steward them before the Lord and release them unto the Lord and above all, to pray for them. To pray over them when they're around and for them when they're not. To pray silently and out loud and to ask them then to pray for you. Now we need to move to the next verse here, which begins to talk about slaves and their masters. Again, at first this seems to be kind of like a disconnected shift, but it's extremely intentional. So I want you to lean in here. Paul goes from talking about children to slaves. And a big point that he's going to make here is that if you're in Christ, you're no longer a slave, you're a son. So the call here is to treat everyone according to who they are in Christ, not according to the social constructs of earthly society. So look with me. Colossians 3, verse 22 says this. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So first of all, here we go. What is a bond servant? Like, isn't that just like a less offensive term for slave? Isn't that what he's talking about? Yes and no. The Greek word here is the word for slave, but the concept of a slave in their culture is extremely different from the concept we have here in America. Like, our understanding of what a slave is has been shaped by our extreme or the extreme injustices against black people in America. But the concept of slave or bondservant in the ancient Greco-Roman world was more like an indentured servant, okay? So the type of slavery that existed in this context rarely had anything to do with race or the color of your skin, if ever. Like during the first century, slavery was almost entirely the result of economic debt, sometimes military conquest, but in this culture especially, 
economic debt was the primary driver for slavery or bond service. In the context Paul's writing, and debt was the reason likely for enslavement. And so if a person, think about this, if a person couldn't pay their debts, they couldn't just go file for bankruptcy, right? They were enslaved to their debtors until they were able to earn back their freedom through slave labor to pay off the amount they owed. And yes, that debt transferred to their children. And if they couldn't pay it off, it transferred to their children's 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 children. It's a picture of sin there. Which means that some were born, yes, into slavery or bound as bondservants. Now, it's also important to understand that many of these kinds of people were educated. They were highly skilled. Some even earned salaries and were eventually able to make enough money to buy their own freedom. So slavery in the ancient world didn't necessarily imply inferiority or incompetence. This type of slavery was mainly about being able to or not able to pay what you owe or what your family owed. And so this is why translators have used the term bondservant rather than slave. But hear me, doesn't mean it was a good system. Right? There's a reason we don't have this system anymore. But it was established as a reality in the ancient world. So Paul isn't writing here to address the system itself. He's speaking to the identity and the purpose for each person, even in the midst of difficulty and injustice. Okay, so he's saying this is how we walk out our salvation. This is how we operate in this fallen world, even in the midst of difficulty and injustice. We still do all that we do in the name of Jesus. Because the true object of all of our service is Jesus. Even in the face of injustice, our service is given not to the earthly ruler, but ultimately unto the Lord. So this is the difference between a slave and a son. Like, a slave works for survival, but his son stewards the land as his own inheritance and with the pleasure of the father. See the difference? If you guys get it, it's going to change the way you view work and life and everything. A slave, bondservant, or hireling only works when the master's around. Because honestly, he's just trying to get his paycheck or put in his time. That's a slave mentality, and it's ultimately fear-driven. You ever had a job where you're just like, doing your best to not do any work until the boss comes around. You know, I used to work construction. It was one of those things where it was like, I'm supposed to be digging a foundation. And I'm like, boss comes around, white hat. I'm like, digging, digging, digging. He leaves and it's like, is he gone? All right, let me take a nap. This is kind of how it was, right? People would come up with some crazy stuff to get out of work. Those jobs are enslaving because of the mentality. You see it? That's a slave mentality. But a son operates out of the father's pleasure and the joy of sharing in the fruit. So Paul is telling bondservants here that if they're in Christ, they're no longer slaves, but they're sons who have a very real inheritance, and you're not working for that boss or that white hat or that paycheck. You're working for a greater thing. I now look at the places that I used to work in summer jobs as a teenager, and I see them, and I'm like, I had a part. I laid the foundation for that building. That's not a slave mentality. It's different. There's a dignity there. So Colossians 3, verse 23 says this, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord 
Christ. Guys, that's a game changer for any situation. Your work, your life, any endeavor you find yourself in is an opportunity to steward the land with worshipful, thankful excellence in the name of Jesus. Even if your boss is a jerk who sees you as totally expendable, I'm not saying you should leave your job or stay in some toxic environment if you don't have to. In fact, 1 Corinthians 7.21, Paul tells bondservants, quote, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. But don't miss the principle that he's giving here, which is that whatever situation you find yourself in, whatever you're doing, even if it's forced, do it as unto the Lord, not men. There's freedom in that. As a son, not a slave, because yours is an identity that's in Christ. If you are in Christ, you can even consider that difficult situation, that job, or that trial, pure joy because of what it's doing in you and through you and a testimony that it gives to all those who are around you. And because for the Christian behind everyone we serve stands Jesus. He is the object of all of our service and all that we do in word and deed, which means that it can all be an offering, even a self-sacrificial offering of joyful worship. Look at Colossians 3.25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. In other words, this is for both the bondservant and the master. Because there's no partiality here. There's no excuses. Both are called to serve one another in Christ because of Christ in the name of Christ. And then trust the Lord to take care of the rest. Last verse, Colossians 4, verse 1. Masters. Treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, even as the boss, you're called to serve and encourage to see the best in your people and call the best out of your people and to help them get there graciously all along the way. Now, you might ask, why didn't he speak against the system here? Well, it's not his goal. His goal here is to encourage the believers in their circumstance, which is the way to freedom and ultimate change in society anyway. That's how it comes about. That's how it has come about for the past 2,000 years. The gospel is the only thing that really brings lasting change because it brings lasting change to hearts, not just laws. But when it brings lasting change to hearts, it often can change the laws also in a godly way. We've seen that as well. And so this is why he's addressing the hearts of believers. In fact, if you've received one of these small notebooks that we have for uh, when you go to community groups, you'll see that it's not just about Colossians. It also has this little extra book in it called Philemon. And Philemon is actually a sort of side letter that Paul wrote alongside Colossians to a man named Philemon who lived in Colossae. And he owned a slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus, we know this because it's in Philemon, and Onesimus is addressed, as we'll see, in Colossians also. Onesimus actually ran away all the way to Rome. He was Philemon's runaway slave, and he runs away from Philemon all the way to Rome and actually ran into the Apostle Paul and became a Christian. Okay? But Paul doesn't order Onesimus to go back to bondage under Philemon to finish paying his debts. Instead, he writes this letter to the Colossians and then another letter to Philemon asking Philemon specifically to receive Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a brother. And you know who delivered the letter to him? Onesimus. 
He tells him to receive him as a brother, a fellow child of God, a fellow worker in the kingdom, a fellow heir of the inheritance, a son. Philemon 1, look at it. There's only one chapter in the book of Philemon. (laughs) But Philemon, uh, verse 12. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Listen to the affection he has there for this runaway slave. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during the imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. That's interesting. He's not demanding anything of him. He's looking to his heart. This isn't forced. He's giving him the opportunity to serve Jesus from his heart. Again, not as a way of people-pleasing, but as an offering of worship. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So literally, to have him back as your brother forever, for eternity. Verse 17, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Oh, what? Receive him as you would receive me, says the Apostle Paul about a runaway slave. Like, that's a major step. Receive your runaway slave back as you would receive the Apostle Paul back. You can't tell me the Bible's pro-slavery. You can't. And it gets better. Look at this. Verse 18. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Guys, that's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Do you see it? Do you see it there? This is how things change in our world. This is how the kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. So let's steward every relationship that he's entrusted to us for him and unto him in the name of Jesus and to do it with thanksgiving. Let's pray.